you know, parting ways with you earned it for me actually gave me the push I needed to go from kind of informal ad hoc consulting to let me try to make a run at this. It was something that had always kicked around in my head. I, you know, I've got friends in my network that are full-time consultants. My father has done a lot of consulting. And, you know, my wife was exceptionally supportive. She said, give it 90 days, right? You earned it to care me on, on the way out. And I was like, if I don't do it now, I may never do it. And I may not love it, but it's, it's worth the experiment. And it pushed me to really go all in on myself. Welcome to Growth Unscripted. The badass professionals. The real questions. The truth behind how top execs got to where they are and how you can follow in their footsteps. Now here's your host, Betts CEO and founder, Carolyn Betts. Welcome back to Growth Unscripted. Today we have Seth List, Global Enterprise Lead of the SDR program at Canva. Thanks for joining me, Seth. Thanks for having me, Carolyn. It's great to be here. We are here in person uh, in Austin, Texas, socially distancing, of course. And Seth and I have known each other for well over a decade. Uh, we met in 2005. But you know, why don't you tell us about you know, how you grew up, where you grew up, and yeah, the early part of your life? Yeah, certainly. So I'm, uh, like you, a Bay Area native. I grew up in uh, Sunnyvale down in the South Bay. My dad's a tech guy. So my, my junior year of high school, which was 98 for me, he moved the whole family out to Austin. Uh, he was working for a Trilogy subsidiary. And that's kicked off about a 10-year spat of me bouncing back and forth between Austin and the Bay Area. So you and I met and my first voyage back as an adult to the Bay, uh, moved to San Francisco in 05. And you and I worked together at Andiamo Group. I was a, a sorcerer to your recruiter. Yeah, well, you know, it's interesting because, you know, we obviously, you know, go way back. And, and so I know a lot of your story. But Andiamo was actually the only job that you ever applied for. It may have been. I think I probably applied for jobs prior to that, but I'm not sure that I have really cold applied for, for many jobs, certainly not jobs that I, that I end up landing since then. And so it was interesting, right? Because you were in recruiting and got recruited out by uh, one of our clients. And you know, we'd love to hear about that journey. Yeah. So, you know, I started on the Yamal Group as a candidate sourcer. I sat down with, with Mark Gambarasi, the, the CEO kind of my, my first interview at the company. And he, he propositioned me with this candidate sourcer job. I had no idea what it was, but I had a little bit of sales experience at that point. Once I wrapped my head around you know, what the job and the, the role entailed, it was right up my alley. And so I joined as a candidate sourcer, supported you and a bunch of others, triaging candidates, passing them your way for open recs and made the jump from candidate sourcer into a direct sales role. I knew enough about the recruiting role to know that probably wasn't for me, but I understood it and really enjoyed being part of the organization. But I think my heart has always kind of lived on the, the sales side of things. So Biospace was a client of mine. I managed that relationship. And in working with the hiring authority there, she at some point, a couple months into our uh, engagement, started lightly propositioning me uh, with the potential of joining her team. So we had a very anxiety-provoking meeting for me. We met in the Starbucks at the bottom of uh, 44 Montgomery, which was the same building we were working from. I was terrified. Where everyone gets their coffee that works there. Right, and she's a <laughs> client. So like maybe it wouldn't have been like noteworthy to anybody else, but all the same, I was scared shitless. And uh, yeah, she kind of explained to me what they were trying to do at Biospace and where I might fit into the mix. And it was, at the time, it felt like a really nice blend of my passion for sales 
And what I was coming to learn and appreciate about recruiting, they sold recruitment advertising. So it was a really nice hybrid and afforded me an opportunity to, to some degree, play in tech sales. It's interesting because after on the Yamo, I also went into recruitment advertising sales at CareerBuilder. And it's funny because when we were at that company, we were recruiting for all these like ads. Back then, ad sales was like the job and we'd see how much money those people made. <laughs> I wanted to do that too. It's like, how do I get from here into selling advertising? And so it's like, you know, you can't just like get an ad sales job back then or even now, I don't know, without some type of relevant experience. But the recruitment into recruitment advertising sales uh, was was back then a great way to do it. So you mentioned that you knew recruiting wasn't going to be for you. And I would love to hear more about that, especially as somebody who's built my entire career on recruiting. Yeah. So I had that candidate sourcer job at Andiamo and, you know, fast forward to 2008, I got to Austin and had an opportunity to join Bizarre Voice as a, as a sales development rep. And to me, the parallels between the two roles were just so obvious. You know, it's a lot of research, kind of connecting of dots. But from a sales standpoint, both roles are very transactional. You're kind of measured in a, on a one-off basis. Both recruiting and closing roles in, in a tech sales capacity, any sales capacity, there's a lot more on the line, right? There's a lot more work to be done to get to that point of conversion or, or a win. With recruitment, you know, your product, if you will, is even more challenging in that you're working with people and people are inherently fickle and fluid, not static. And so I just, from the outside, watched you and your, your peers uh, experience those peaks and valleys that come with like really working to satisfy that hiring manager and find the right candidate and negotiate both sides of that deal to make it come together, which can be exceptionally rewarding when it works and incredibly heartbreaking when it doesn't. And I know enough about myself to know that, I mean, kind of two things, the money was never the big draw for me. I enjoy making money. I feel like I make plenty to live a very comfortable lifestyle. But the notion of kind of chasing those big paychecks on big wins, whether it be a placement or deals, for me, wasn't worth the trade-off, which was kind of the never-ending stress and anxiety of, is this going to come together or fall apart? And what does that mean for how I finish the month or the quarter or the year? It's not only your paycheck that uh, is at risk, but your reputation and social capital within the business with your peers as well. For me, just never really was worth the trade-off. You know, it is interesting. There's like so many bad beat stories out there of... Um people that take a job and, and don't show up on the first day or, you know, quit or get into a company and it's not everything that they had thought it was going to be. And um, it can be stressful, but it's also very rewarding too, to be able to help people throughout their careers, either find what's next and, and help them you know, grow in their career. And also, you know, the whole flow of uh, helping them build their teams as well. But yeah, you know, it's, it's funny because it, with COVID, you know, we can't meet people in person as much as we used to. And I remember every time I would hear a story from a Betzer or somebody that had, you know, a, an experience, like you said, of a person you know, doing something, you know, not exactly in the plan of what we were expecting, I would always say, have you met this person in person? <laughs> and obviously it was a rhetorical question because people that you meet in person don't do, you know, it's not a always rule, but you know, they generally don't do as much shady stuff as you know, if you have never met the person before. Well, they don't surprise you as much. when you, it, That was something that stuck with me over the years. And I think part of why you and I have remained close, there's others in my life that I hold close that fall into these camps of recruiter and salesperson that come with their own stigmas. But that notion of integrity 
And it was a Mark Ambrosi thing. I think he, he kind of stamped us both with that. But what I have a lot of really fond memories and things that stick with me over the years from Andiamo, but one of them being we meet our candidates in person, right? We were a boutique shop and by and large, we did not work with a candidate that uh, we could not meet in person through the process because you just, the likelihood that they lie or do something out of character or surprise you is far lower when you can put eyes on someone. Oh, I remember you know, that runway. <laughs> Candidates would come into the lobby and then everyone's desk was in a row and you could see their candidates walking in and like, <laughs> totally. And, you know, it's uh, whether it was good or bad that we did that, it was definitely a thing where <laughs> and people would come in. And I, I also remember his thing about no, we don't go to them either. <laughs> it's like, oh, well, this candidate wants me to meet them for coffee. Nope. They come meet you. <laughs> and it's funny because I forgot that that was an Andiamo thing, but that was definitely something that I brought to bets. And then we started changing the rules a little bit. Like if it's a leadership person, then you can go meet them, you know, for coffee. But, you know, anyway, I'm not sure if these, all these rules were necessary, but there's, there's things that come with them, right? And it's the dynamics of the relationship, getting to know people, you know, really building a solid relationship, but that, you know, you also demand a certain level of respect when you're going to be representing somebody and then vice versa, obviously, as well. And it's interesting because once you got into the SCR role, and you alluded to this a little bit in your last comment, you've stayed within that capacity within tech companies. And obviously, you've had plenty of opportunities to go into the, you know, coveted closing role, but you've strategically made a decision to grow your career in sales development. And I'd love to hear more about that. Yeah. So, I mean, the story I, I tell, which I've told a few times, maybe a lot of times, I moved to Austin in 08. I actually landed in an RPO firm. The CEO there had recruited me fairly aggressively. And we were just very different stylistic. I'm a kind of quirky, you know, you can't see me covered in tattoos, big holes in my ears. You know, and I was working with a kind of small town, West Texas guy, different morals, different ideas. The business was arguably successful. It was just a bad fit for me. And so I had an opportunity through my father, actually, who knew Brett Hurt through Bootstrap Austin. So Brett was the founder and CEO of Bizarre Voice. They just closed a Series B. And so my, my dad said, hey, if you, if you don't try to sell Brett, he may help you to better understand the mindset of, of the folks you're trying to sell to. And when I met with Brett, he basically said, it sounds like you've got an uphill battle here with this RPO model. Why don't you come for, you know, work for us as, a, as an SDR? Back then, we were market developers. Uh, I think Bizarre Voice was probably one of the first to bring the SDR function into the business here in Texas as compared to, I think, the, the coasts are a little bit ahead of the curve. They tend to lead. But I got to Bizarre Voice and very quickly figured out that what they were asking me to do was not all that different from candidate sourcing, which I was pretty good at. And I found success very quickly and fell madly in love with the function. I really appreciate the partnership that can exist, the healthy partnerships that can exist between SDRs and, and AEs whatever titles you call them, similarly, you know, sourcers and, and recruiters, they're, they're hand-in-glove functions. And certainly as sales has evolved and the technology landscape has exploded and buyers in the market have a multitude of options, right? The sales process has had to change. And I'm really convinced that this bifurcated kind of hand-in-glove model is, is here to stay and that conversation opening is a separate and distinct skill from deal closing. To that end, I kind of reject the notion that that's the organic path because I do believe they're, they're two different skill sets. Clearly it works, right? And for organizations that are making investments to really train up their SDRs on, on the new set of skills they'll need to be successful in sales, it can work. 
But for me personally, again, I really enjoy, uh, with regard to the role itself, uh, the research, kind of connecting dots. Who are these people within the organization? How do they interrelate with each other? And, and who are my highest likelihood prospects? And then the subsequent research of how do I, how do I dangle some bait that's going to be compelling to them? How do I approach them in a way that feels personal and intentional for them? And then the quick win of, you know, they respond to an email. For me, getting a response to an email, even if it's a, a less than positive reply, feels like a win. It's the thing that makes me jump out of my seat and like pump my fists or find somebody to give me a high five. And in hindsight, you know, it's been really incredible to watch the market and the function evolve over the last 10, 12 years. Just the notion of uh, technologies like outreach and sales that really were designed from the start to support an SDR. I mean, that's a big deal, right? I, I talk to my teams. I feel like the old guy in the room, 40s around the corner for me. But you know, when I was a kid, Salesforce and Outlook were all I had to work with, right? And so it's been fun and interesting to watch it evolve. And the other piece of this, I'm the oldest of four. You know, my folks are still married, fairly tight-knit family unit, but I really love coaching and mentoring. And so the path for me always seemed very clear, which was to prove excellence in the role and then teach others how to do it. Um, and I really appreciate the one-to-one engagement that I get through um, managing people. And as a consultant, the opportunity to work one-to-one or one-to-a-small group is really rewarding. I feel like I have a lot to offer, but I'm best in kind of those small group settings. And SDR leadership allows me to do the things I love that I, I feel I'm good at while making an impact every day. Super cool. And you, know, you mentioned that Bizarre Voice was one of the first companies to really embrace the structure of the SCR AE model here in Texas. Salesforce really put that on the map in the earlier days. And Aaron Ross, who you had the opportunity to work with, really built you know, a very successful business off of having been part of watching the company structure in a way where you know, the leads come in and, you know, the SDR team calls them. And then also the, the flip side of what you were talking about, the outbound strategic targeting of accounts and, and splitting that function of the research, contact, getting the interest and the rest of the deal cycle. And, you know, I'd love to hear about, because, you know, obviously he wrote Predictable Revenue and about your experience working with Aaron and, and the work that you guys had the opportunity to do there. Yeah, I mean, Aaron is absolutely brilliant. He and I are, are very different to the extent that he, to me, is that quintessential entrepreneur. His willingness to put himself out there and to take big risks is so impressive to me. I'm, uh, I'm a bit more conservative or reserved in that regard. It's not good, bad, or otherwise, but it was a lot of fun to work with him just to watch him work and interact with clients. I think I, I still even today have some sense of imposter syndrome, right? Getting in a room with a VP of sales or a CRO at a a noteworthy company and, and really directly challenging them on their beliefs or their approach or you know, what their plans are. Uh, Aaron can do that flawlessly and from an outsider's perspective without fear or hesitation. He can, he can challenge leaders in a way that they actually pay attention and listen uh, and it yields change in their, in their mindset and their plans. And he and I made for a really nice team to the extent that you know, my, my instinct is to dive into the weeds. I'm a details guy, very process-oriented so he and I complemented each other well to the extent that he'd kind of paint a vision, kind of set the course, and then I could jump in and help operationally to put things in place, hire the, the people, put structure around it, and, and go bring that idea to life. So I really, I enjoyed my time with, with Aaron and certainly didn't uh, part ways with PR on bad terms, no bad blood, just, you know, you look at the 
trajectory of Canva and, and Canva, you know, found me, a former colleague was there and reached out. It was an absolutely incredible opportunity. And so, yeah, I've got uh, nothing but great things and to say and love for, for the PR crew. Yeah, it's interesting you mentioned the yin and yang aspect of teams and building companies. And I think that, you know, a lot of people, and this has changed incredibly over time, and especially, you know, within the last couple of years where people would want to hire people that were like them. And, oh, you know, we're so similar. This is going to be so great to work together. But really where the magic happens is where you find people that have skills that you don't have and people that you know, are great at things that you're not great at. And, uh, you know, I really, you know, I bet I have a COO who, you know, is very operational and loves spreadsheets and all the details. And, you know, I love doing things like this, right? Where I get to go out and if he had to go to the number of lunches and dinners and in-person meetings and conferences that I went to, I feel like I get to do all the fun stuff. But there's so many people that just like don't think what I think is fun is fun and they'd rather be at home and chilling and, you know, doing the back end things that really help to make companies successful. And I think that sounds similar to your experience with Aaron. So the notion of, you know, You've had a lot of jobs and, and you, know, you look at your LinkedIn and you openly say, I don't have a degree, you know, incomplete. And it, last time we were talking, you're like, I didn't, you notice these things, Carolyn. I don't even notice. And like that was intentional that you put it out there on your LinkedIn that you didn't complete your degree and you've moved jobs when things didn't feel right for you or a better opportunity came along, the notion of being a job hopper never held you back. And, you know, I think people having been in recruitment and just for a little bit of context, there's a stigma associated with people that, you know, don't stay in jobs for a certain amount of time. And a lot of people are like, well, I'm going to hire this person and then they're just going to leave because they've done it at all these other jobs. And also the, you know, not completing a degree. However, this has not held you back whatsoever in your career. And, you know, I think it's pretty awesome that you've gone against the grain of what is supposed to be, you know, how you build a career. So tell me more about that. Let's talk about that. I really enjoy school. I, I, and it may not be school necessarily, although I don't reject informal learning environments. I just like to learn. I really enjoy taking in new information and, and chewing on it, figuring it out. What is there here that I can learn and apply in, in my life? You know, it's constant experimentation. So when I moved, you know, my, again, my dad moved the family here to Austin uh, my junior year. I graduated, promptly packed a bunch of shit in my truck, drove back to San Jose, spent the summer with my uncle, and I met a girl that was going to UCSC. And so I packed up and I I moved to Santa Cruz. I did community college for a couple of years and I took courses that were nowhere near pursuit of my degree uh, just because I enjoyed learning. So everything from English and math and history to arts and photography, I took a little bit of everything because I just enjoyed it. And in the meantime, I kind of fell into sales and I found myself to be good at it. And so I was kind of had these competing priorities to the extent that I could go all in on school and try to peg a major, none of, none of which really felt right at the time based on what I was learning in the professional world and where I was finding happiness and success and, and, and income, candidly. But I didn't want to give up. So I, I made this half-hearted attempt on and off for four or five years to go finish that degree. I uh, did a few semesters at Cabrillo. I did some time at San Francisco City College. And then I got into San Francisco State and did one semester 
uh, before realizing, you know, at that moment in my life, that one semester was 40 hour work weeks at Biospace, which in hindsight, the commission plan there was absurd. I, I was making money hand over fist, but I was putting in 40 hour weeks and then jumping on my bicycle to haul ass all the way across town to, you know, go to school. And for me, it was just the investment in formal schooling to get that degree to not justify the limited potential increase in earnings opportunity professionally. I don't think people really talk about the opportunity cost of school, you know, four years where you could be. And, and I think college degrees are overvalued in sales in particular. And I don't know if you remember this on the Amo, but there was this list. There was a company, a client, and I'm not going to name any names, but it was a company that we worked with and uh, they were in one market, super fancy office. And you had to have graduated to be an SDR, mind you. This was an SDR role. You had to have gone to one of these 50 schools and we had the list. And if the school wasn't on the list, the candidate was not allowed to be presented. And I remember feeling really good because my school was on the list. Uh, (laughs) But, (laughs) and Quay's school was on the list. But it was like this whole divisive thing. And there were great candidates and people that were awesome that were rejected solely based off of not having a four-year degree. Not only not having a four-year degree, but not having a four-year degree (laughs) from this list. And I think... Obviously, as an SBR leader, I'd be interested in hearing about, you know, when you're hiring and you're going about building your own teams, you know, what you're obviously not looking at the list because, you know. <laughs> I, don't, I don't have a list. Um, well, and a, a quick aside, I do my best to keep the ego at bay, but the gentleman who, who recruited me to Canva, he and I worked together at Google. He was a full-timer. Prior to joining Google on that 12-month contract, I had applied probably half a dozen times and because I don't have a degree. I can never even get a phone screen. And so I kind of backdoored into Google through this Gunkworks project where they picked up a bunch of staff on contract and the agency found me and placed me. But I got in there and I was hitting 200% a goal for the first four months. They pulled me off the phones and, and asked me to champion a peer coaching program because the managers weren't selling and the team was exceptionally junior. And I, I just you know couldn't help but smirk to myself most days that like Google didn't want me because I didn't have a degree. And now that I'm finally here, They've elevated me. I've, I've crushed my numbers. They're giving me opportunities. They flew me to headquarters. Um, and so that was absolutely a, you know, a feather in my cap, kind of a stick it to Google, right? You didn't think I was good enough because I didn't have the degree, but it says nothing for my talent or my ability to do the job. Well, it's interesting how they create those loopholes for themselves of like, hey, you're not really a Google employee, you know, because you work for this third-party company, but you're working at Google. I was working at Google. <laughs> I had, you know, I had the red badge, not the white, but I still got all the perks and, you know, the benefits of the compensation package and, you know, all of that. So, yeah, that was a really uh, enjoyable time for me. I can't say that I'm really built for an organization like Google necessarily. But I enjoyed my time there. And certainly I'm, I'm big on relationships, as you know, and the relationships I made there have, have carried forward. I work with some really incredible people, many of which you stayed at, at Google, right? They're, they're better wired for big companies, more structure, to some degree, a bit more politics. But uh, for me, I really, it's on my LinkedIn profile, right? But I'm an SDR nerd, kind of first and foremost professionally. But behind that, uh, I'm a startup guy and a, and a builder. And so much of that startup experience, you know, being the first or second uh, lead generator into a business. There's a lot on line and there's a whole lot of experimentation that needs to be done. And to that end, I don't know if there are a lot of candidates in the market who can kind of bring experimental experience 
to bear. And so when I think about hiring, I'm really just looking for diversity and experience and perspectives. I'm actually hiring right now as we speak at, at Canva and doing kind of the calibration process with our internal recruiter around what, what an optimal resume looks like for me because it's not the traditional resume. And it's not to say I won't interview candidates with SDR experience. I, I would love to find them, but I've hired and coached and, uh, and worked with really incredible SDRs who came from unrelated backgrounds, whether fresh out of school with something like fundraising experience, which is kind of like sales or retail experience, or folks much further into their career, women re-entering the workforce after you know, childbirth or folks who have spent 10 years in one industry and now they want to crack into tech sales. I'm sure you see that a lot at, oh, yeah. at bets. But I've seen some incredibly uh, successful SDRs come out of wholly unrelated backgrounds. And so I tend to err on the side of phone screening everybody because I don't know where the talent hides. And when you're phone screening them, what kinds of questions are you asking? What are you looking for in those conversations if it's not experience? Yeah, uh, it's a great question. So Colin Stewart, um, Aaron's co-founder at Predictable Revenue, is a big proponent for the who hiring process. Having a background in recruiting, I knew that I knew that when I was interviewing, Colin was putting me through that who process. So I grabbed the book and I read it, which just made for a lot of fun because uh, <laughs> I knew exactly where he was headed with the interview before we sat down to have it. Um, but I've adopted some of that. So it's really just implementing some structure and a standard series of questions that you ask all candidates. Historically, I tried to kind of customize the experience, you know, scrambling 15 minutes before the interview to review their resume and come up with bespoke questions. The who process allows me to standardize that. Um, selfishly, it allows me to come into an interview cold and know exactly what questions I'm going to ask and set a baseline by asking every candidate the same questions. Which is, and I, I don't think people recognize this enough, and this is something that we've done at Bets. It's actually very important to eliminate bias, uh, to ask people the same questions and have a process in which it's consistent for everybody. Because um, otherwise, you go back to what we had talked about of the, oh, hey, I want to, you know, the, I, the beer test comes up so much in this podcast, but it just, it, it was a thing. And, oh, I want to have a beer with this person. And, you know, I'm going to hire them because I think we'd be great friends. This is like the worst strategy ever for building, you know, a great company and a great team. So, you know, what are those questions that you're asking now and, and what are you looking for? Yeah. So, I mean, I'll start with the second question, which is what, I, what am I looking for? I, in the last few years, have started reading more professionally. For a long time, I was just taking... I'm an experiential learner. I'm going to take in signals from the work I do and the things I learn and then, and then chew on them and put them into practice and, and iterate. Uh, I have been reading more and I tore through a chunk of the Patrick Lencioni library last year. So I think most people know him for the five dysfunctions of a team. The book that kind of is going to yield my answer to your question was um, The Ideal Team Player. And so he gave language to things that had been kind of kicking around in my head. I was using different words, but he, he put it much more succinctly and clearly. Patrick Lencioni defines the ideal team player as a combination of hungry, humble, and smart. So kind of that, that fire in the belly, right? Just hungry for knowledge, for growth, for advancement, a level of humility, you know, a willingness to acknowledge I don't know what I don't know. My language previously was coachable. I was looking for coachable staff. And his definition of smart is less IQ, although I would argue that's important, but his notion of smart is really on the EQ side. So not only understanding self, but having a decent ability to read those around you to understand how your behavior, how you're hardwired, how you communicate, how that affects people around you. And so that's really what I'm screening for. And the questions allow me to get to that. 
my recruiter leads the phone screen. And so she's got, I think it's four questions that she asks of every candidate. They're, they're fairly high level. I come next in line, the hiring manager interview. I, I ask them to give me in their own words what they were hired to do at a previous job. They don't have much work experience. We only focus on the job they had. And if they've got a fairly extensive resume, I'll focus on the jobs that are most relevant for the one they're applying for. But what were you hired to do? What are you most proud of? Where did you struggle? This is part of the magic of the who process, a very pointed question. Who did you work most closely with? Give me their first and last name, spell it. And why is that important? Well, because the following questions behind that are when I call them, not if I call them, but when I call them and talk to them. So if the candidate had worked for you, I'd say, when I talk to Carolyn, what will she tell me you're best at? What are your strengths? And the flip side of the coin, when I talk to Carolyn, what's she going to tell me you need to work on? And so I'm assessing that in particular is uh, the humble piece. It's a combination of the smarts, how self-aware are they, and how humble are they. And the phrasing specifically yields more candid answers. Because if you ask a candidate, if I talk to your references, what will they tell me? It's not explicit. There's no pressure. When you say, when I talk to Carolyn Betts, who was your you know, founder, CEO, you work most closely with her, what is she going to say about you? It sets the tone. It gives the candidate the, the impression, I will be picking up the phone to call Carolyn. And so you better be honest with your answers. Interesting. And then the last one is simply, why did you leave that job? And again, assessing for how, how candid and honest are they willing to be. Prior to using this process, I, I was always um, intentional as a hiring authority when I asked questions around who did you work with and what was the relationship like? And if I talk to them, what will they say? I was a fan of giving candidates permission to be honest because if you go to the the internet and you research on the candidate side, like the do's and don'ts of interviewing, you're often guided to, you know, not talk about comp, like ask thoughtful questions about the business and the strategy, not specific perks, et cetera. And the other pieces generally don't talk shit about former employers, (laughs) right? But, you know, if they're not there anymore, there's a reason they left that job. And I would much prefer that a candidate be honest and forthcoming, both about where they struggled, right? What weren't you getting from your team or your leadership or what were you doing that caused conflict and challenging situations for you? Because if I know what I'm getting into with a candidate, if I know what I have to work with, I'm comfortable taking a risk. But if they're unwilling to own their faults, to be honest with themselves about where they struggle and what they need to work on, I can't help them. And I really am, as a people leader, I hate the term management, um, but as a people leader, you know, my job is to help people grow. And to do that, they have to have a level of self-awareness and share what they know about themselves so that I can help them to kind of tamp down the, uh, the negative behavior, uh, uncover the blind spots, and then help grow them in their, their natural strengths. How often do you find that when you bring people into the organization, and I'm pretty sure I know the answer to this, does it end up not working out? Rarely. I think in my career as a hiring authority, and supporting clients in pursuit of, of hiring SDRs. So kind of supporting hiring. Over my career, I, I've probably hired or helped to hire pushing 100 SDRs. Yep. I've only had to churn two that I've hired myself that worked underneath me. 2%. Yeah. And, and that's low for the industry. And the reason why I ask is because I was pretty confident that that was not going to be, oh, it happens all the time. But it also, the thoughtfulness that you put into the hiring process and also your leadership and the attention that you put to coaching, development, training, and the expectation that you put on yourself as a leader to get the people 
up to where they need to be. You put it on you versus them. Yes, you have to meet. And obviously there's, it's a two-way street and the person has to show up ready and willing to learn to make mistakes. But you know, that continuous growth mindset is one that you have. And I believe that that's one of the qualities that you're looking for when you're building your team. And, you know, having been in recruiting for, you know, having that's over a decade now and, you know, starting in 2004, I used to think that if things didn't work out, it was because of the candidate. And more and more with companies, I, I realize that yes, sometimes it is the employee, but more often than not, most of the miss is really on the employee. And I don't know if you've seen that, but I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. Yeah, I mean, thoughts are, we're all flawed as humans. We are imperfect. So when it comes to hiring, I'm looking for the candidates that are willing to own the fact that they are imperfect and let me know where I can help and add value. If they're un- It's that kind of notion of you know, the first step to recovery is recognizing that you have a problem. <laughs> <laughs> you know, if a candidate's unwilling to recognize that they have a problem, if they're constantly pointing the finger at the employer, and I don't discount what you just said, I do agree. I'll, I'll touch on that too. But working relationships are relationships. They may not be romantic, but good ones are intimate, right? And at a minimum, you're, you're interacting with other humans that come into conversations, whether it's a, a hierarchical, right? You report to me and, or I'm your boss, or it's cross-functionally we're all going to come into a conversation with different ideas and opinions, different experience that informs what we're driving toward, what recommendations we make, where we hold the line and, and stand our ground on things. And so all of what we do as both sellers and recruiters, I mean, I could argue humans in the world, is collaborating and negotiating. I'm in the throes of finishing up Simon Sinek's uh, Leaders Eat Last, which I really enjoyed because it's less about kind of common management wisdom and a whole lot about our biology, so sociology, anthropology, how we're wired as humans, why hierarchy is, is natural. And now, of course, I've lost track of the question that you, you asked me, but... It's just about the notion that... Oh, fit. Companies' accountability. In, yes, and making their employees successful. Yeah. I don't even quite know where to start. I, I do believe that I have more responsibility to make things work with the staff that I pick than the employee has themselves. I need them to lean into that, but I'm older. I hope that I'm a little bit wiser. You know, I likely make more money. And with that comes a higher level of responsibility and accountability. If I've made the decision to hire someone, if I have confidence in my process, if I've afforded my peers opportunities to meet the candidate and we collectively say we want to make an investment here, I have an obligation to that individual and to the business to try to make that work. And that takes effort. And so, you know, I'm a bit of an anomaly in, in an SDR leadership role. My role today has me both doing kind of frontline people management and then sitting at the executive table with my peers in sales leadership, sales operations, marketing. But the, the people management piece, when I look around the market today, it's actually been interesting to see this shift. But uh, when I was interviewing with Canva, I, of course, when it rains, it pours. I heard from a handful of other hiring authorities who were specifically and intentionally looking for someone like me. And by that, I mean someone with eight, to 10 years of SDR and SDR leadership experience. Whereas the typical profile up until very recently, when I go troll LinkedIn and I keep tabs on who's hiring who for, for SDR leadership, it was a very frontline management role, right? They were looking for candidates. Companies were looking for candidates with one to two years of success in the role, kind of ready to make that jump into a team lead or a management role. But doing the job and effectively leading others doing that job are two totally different skill sets. And so if businesses don't invest in teaching their managers how to be effective coaches, mentors, 
kind of see the bigger picture of how all of these things are interrelated within an organization, right? HR is, uh, should be a partner. DEI teams and culture teams, right, should be very close to management and they're not always. And so you get inexperienced managers or folks that have plenty of management experience under their belt, but don't lean into the coaching piece that end up churning out really talented folks before they ever live to their potential within the organization. Yeah, that is really interesting that, you know, also it was a lot of the promote from within model, right? Oh, who's the top SDR on the team? Let's make them the manager. And, you know, we all know, you know, we're kind of smiling at each other here because it's so true. And I think not often enough do we recognize that great individual contributors don't always make great leaders. And, um, you know, there's this company that we're uh, looking at partnering with Aptology. And, you know, there's so many assessments out there. But what this is really about is like, and not like what their personality is necessarily. There, It has to do with personality, but like what role their personality is best suited for versus, you know, is this person going to be a great salesperson? And that's part of it. But anyway, so... Um, more on that. But I think it's really interesting when you look at, you know, human psychology. And I think part of that book with Simon Sinek is, you know, creating safe environment where people feel safe to make mistakes and safe to own their faults and, uh, and be provided with a healthy environment to make those mistakes with the, with the support, not kind of passive, you screwed up, uh, we're just going to pretend that didn't happen. But like leaning in and saying, well, why did you do what you did in the first place? And what was your expected outcome? And, and it didn't go that way. So what did we learn? And how can that, how can you evolve and change your approach in a way that yields better outcomes? Or what's the next experiment? And the next experiment may fail and that's okay. Um, and that's both in the role itself, how do we better engage our target prospects, but also within the business itself. And again, we're all people and we're going to experience conflict within our organizations as well. And, and again, Simon Sinek's book is about, we, we can't afford to have threats outside the business and in the business itself. And it's creating that environment, of, uh, you know, psychological safety where people f- feel like they can fuck up and that it's not going to cost them their job or their reputation. And I think it's probably more top of mind for me, just having spent most of my career in startup environments where so much is an experiment. Right? We simply don't know what we don't know and we have to go into it with the expectation that some of what we try will fail and that's okay. The goal is to learn something and to do it better the next time, not to not fail at the onset. It's really true, right? And trial and error. And when you have a mentality of trying new things, being creative, looking to grow past where you are, some things are going to work, some things aren't. And really embracing that that's okay. And that not everyone's perfect. So last time we were chatting, I'm like, have you ever been fired? And I wasn't sure if you had or not, but um, that was, <laughs> but that you do have an experience of having a company part ways. Yeah. Yeah. So I uh, had an opportunity to build on a small, scrappy existing SDR team at, at what used to be you earned it and is now Kazoo. And so I was actually a customer of theirs prior to being an employee. I, I happened to work in the same building. So my boss met the co-founder of You Earned It and they got to talking and my boss came back and said, we got to pilot this. And it, it turned into a whole initiative. We deployed it. Uh, but I got a chance to meet Kenny's co-founder, Autumn Manning, who's the founder and CEO of, of You Earned It in the process. And at the time, the company was quite small. And so she looked to me, we, we were literally in the same building. I, even at that point, was a, an SDR nerd. And so she and I would do you know quarterly coffees, get together, talk about 
how her business was evolving, who she was trying to hire, and certainly anything related to sales or sales development. She kind of tapped me to pick my brain. And in 20, I guess that was 2017, I had an opportunity to, to join the organization, which as an aside, was a lot of fun because one of her two SDRs at the time was a woman that I had referred who actually worked for my brother for years in a restaurant setting. She was a professional chef and wanted to get into the tech world. So I referred her to Autumn. Autumn hired her. And then a year later, I was her boss. <laughs> Funny how that all works out. The full circle. It really is. Austin's a, a small town and it gets smaller by the day. So I grew that team from two to, to five SDRs. That was the first time i I had explored or experimented with a discrete team to do all of the research and data entry. So we had a strategic sourcing team. And so I had five SDRs and two sourcers and things were going really well. And, and it helped us to build the business to a point where we got you know, interest from a PE firm. You learned it was acquired by Vista and subsequently merged with a company out of Chicago called High Ground. They had a performance management um, platform. And so they were complementary technologies selling to the same buyer. And, and so we had some redundancy between our two teams, which often happens in, in a kind of mergers and, and acquisition scenario. And ultimately, you know, the leadership decided that my job was unnecessary. So I don't know that I got fired for performance necessarily. My team was performing quite well, but the PE model is slightly different. And a big chunk of that is kind of cutting costs and introducing operational efficiency. I had built a program that was fairly self-sustaining, um, which has always kind of been my strategy is building a team and programs that no longer need me, which may sound <laughs> crazy, but like I'm going to work myself out of a job. I'm going to put, you know, I'm going to experiment. I'm going to put people and process in place. We're going to get to a point of repeatability. And at that point, like the program should be able to run itself. And to some degree, that's what happened to me. It, you learned it was that the, the team, my team was in a place of uh, repeatability and kind of homeostasis. And so they, uh, they relieved me of duty. And at the time, it absolutely took the wind out of my sails. I, I didn't see it coming. Vista had gotten involved with the business. Their consulting group was on site with us a couple times a month. And I was in the room for those meetings. I was the only non-BP the, on the company side in, in those meetings. And I, I thought everything was good. And, and then it wasn't. And I was... <laughs> it's like the Bob and Bob from... Um, so what do you do here? <laughs> yeah. In hindsight, though, it was... It went exactly how it was supposed to. I, I legitimately worked myself out of a job there. And the, the gentleman who I'd been grooming was kind of next in line. He took on my responsibilities and he and I remained close. He was actually a neighbor of mine until very recently. He and I did coffee a couple months after, after I parted ways. And he said, Seth, I never could have built that program, but it was such a joy to watch, watch you do it and be along for the ride. And, and it allowed me to keep it going in your absence which was just so heartwarming for me that, that he had enough uh, maturity, professionalism to kind of understand and see what had happened. He's still, he's uh, eight or 10 years younger than me, but I did my job. I did it well. And it just, it happened to cost me my job, but. Well, and I think it goes back to the idea that you are a builder, right? And you like to, you gravitate towards startup environments where you get to come in and build something. You know, you're not necessarily in, you can also probably fix things. But for you, it sounds like it's really exciting to go in and trial, error, but make it work. And you've done it at so many different companies, not only you know, where you've been employed, but also consulting for companies. So, you know, you probably built out SCR programs at dozens, if not, you know, over 100 companies. But, you know, as a builder, where they're coming in and building process, you know, you probably would have gone through some painful thoughts about, is this where I really want to be? And ended up searching anyway. Yeah. 
I don't know that I can take credit for my level of self-awareness. I really feel like it, it's hardwired in me, but I feel so fortunate. To your point, I mean, I know what I want to do. I know what I want to do and what I'm good at and what gives me joy and fulfillment and puts the money I need in my bank account. And so I'm not especially motivated by like the paycheck or the prestige. I was talking to, um, I did lunch the other day with a guy that worked for me at Humble. Uh, he and I both made a run at you know, building out consulting businesses. I, mine was shorter than his and we were having this conversation about was it a waste of his time to spend five years you know, trying to build his own thing. You know, parting ways with you earned it for me actually gave me the push I needed to go from kind of informal ad hoc consulting to let me try to make a run at this. It was something that had always kicked around in my head. I, you know, I've got friends in my network that are full-time consultants. My father has done a lot of consulting. The business always found me. And so it was, it was just kind of this organic confluence of events where I was on the heels of, of kind of testing and validating a new model to the team design piece. Continue to be like the SDR guy in Austin or one of a handful, right? It's just not to toot my own horn. There just aren't a lot of us that have spent 10 plus years in sales development in the Austin market. And, you know, my wife was exceptionally supportive. She said, give it 90 days, right? You learned it to care me on, on the way out. And I was like, if I don't do it now, I may never do it. And I may not love it, but it's, it's worth the experiment. And it pushed me to really go all in on myself. And what I learned over those two years between a year on my own and then a year with Aaron and Colin at Predictable Revenue is that I'm a product guy. You know, services businesses play by a different set of rules. The, the margins and the kind of how you build the business and what you can expect and what that theoretical big event is at the end is very different for a services organization than it is for product. And I've tried my hand at it a couple of times in a couple of ways now. And for me, it's now, you know, I've scratched the itch. I checked the box. It, consulting is, is fun and rewarding. And if I have other opportunities to do it in addition to full-time employment in a, in a you know, product environment, I will just because it's really rewarding work. But having that be my livelihood and my full-time job, I now know that's, that's not the path for me. And I also think that consulting, especially in the capacity that you are doing it, where, you know, you go in, you build something, but you don't, you, yes, obviously you keep in touch with the company after you get everything going, but it's not the same, I don't think. And you can tell me as like going in, building it, building the team, and then getting to see it work over a much longer period of time and to get to see all of the wins that come on the back end of the work that you put in. Yeah. So it's interesting because I, I, I very much identify as a builder. I like being the first person in or joining when, when kind of the sales organization is still small and in its infancy. But that comes with risk. I mean, all, all of the data out there tells us that most startups fail, right? So the notion that I've had a lot of jobs shouldn't be surprising to anyone that knows that most of my career has been spent in startups. Most startups fail at some point. You know, I go in, I give it my all. I try to create a market, you know, establish product market fit. But if it's not there, I'm still only one piece of the chain. Right? If the product isn't where it needs to be, if the sales team still needs training and development, or we just haven't figured out how to sell it effectively, it's going to be a hard road. The other piece of this for me is just it, creeping up on 40. I've, I've spent the last couple of years working very intentionally on owning, kind of identifying and owning my blind spots, better understanding the things that caused me conflict cross-functionally, right? Because once you get out of the IC role and start to manage people, creep up on that director level, there's, there's an expectation that you work cross-functionally as part of the sales organization with marketing, with operations, with finance, with uh, legal, right? Because we're all involved in, in the revenue equation, uh, throw CSMs in there as well. 
And I don't know that I was ready prior to joining Canva to really successfully, one, manage my own emotions and two, kind of navigate the complexity that comes with that cross-functional dialogue. And so I feel, I'm not an especially religious guy, but the, you know, the word that comes to mind is I feel really blessed to have been approached by Canva and to have had this opportunity to join an organization where I really do see a future for myself with the organization. The lion's share of my experience is kind of the sub 20 million ARR organization. And the two guys I work most closely with in Austin are both gentlemen who have quite a bit of experience in the 100 million plus, right, second line management. And so I feel like I've got a lot to offer the business right now, just based on the experience I bring to the table which will help get us to that point where my experience peters out and thus I can look to my peers to really help grow in my own career. Uh, I've shied away from second line management for a long time because I, because I love the coaching so much and I'm excited to reframe my mindset and focus on how do I help other people leaders be effective people leaders because I, I think I'm a good one. And so again, reframing my mindset instead of how do I help an SDR be a better SDR, how do I empower other coaches and people managers to empower their people, um, which will be an interesting and fun task when we get there. So yeah, for me, the Canva opportunity was the confluence of like kind of self-awareness and owning my shit, working on some stuff that was causing me trouble in the past and really feeling ready and equipped to tackle that head on, um, being surrounded by peers who are of the same mind that are also pushing themselves to be better and to grow and to evolve. And just from a company standpoint, like, Canva has an undeniable product market fit. Absolutely. I think that's really interesting, right? It's almost like taking your passion, right, for coaching and development. And it's almost like making yourself more scalable, really. And the thinking it through like the amount of impact that you can have is much greater through, you know, that second line management and then potentially from their third line, et cetera. And Canva has such an incredible trajectory. And when you talk to me now about the current size of the SDR team, I was surprised that it was so small because I, what, there's five people on the team right now, or is there more than that? I've got seven right seven. now. Seven. Okay, seven. Still, right? You know, Canva has raised how much money? Like a, a lot. A lot. <laughs> uh, I forget how many how many commas and zeros in that yeah, the, the funding figure, but a lot. A lot, right? And so you see numbers like that and you would think, oh, you know, it's a massive floor of, you know, SDR, BDR people. But it's so exciting that there's so much potential with all the resources that you have and the product market fit and the amount of customers who were customers of Canva. And we love it. And every person, you know, you, know, you came and did the fireside chat and was like, we love Canva. Canva's so cool. We used it for our vision boarding exercise for our team. So yeah, it's really, I, I'm excited to see where this journey takes you. And um, you know, any final advice or words of wisdom for our audience? Uh, oh man, I wish I'd had a chance to prepare for that. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I think if I were to, to leave the audience with one thought is uh, stop trying to be perfect. It's true. I agree. I think once you embrace that you're not, it makes yourself, makes life a lot easier. <laughs> So thank you so much for joining me. It's so great to see you. You too. Thanks so much for having me, Carolyn. Growth Unscripted is powered by Bets. From fully customizable end-to-end recruiting services to a platform featuring 15,000 vetted job-seeking professionals, Bets connects the most extraordinary go-to market talent with the most innovative companies in the world. 
Be sure to subscribe for more episodes with badass executives and check us out at betsrecruiting.com for more information on how we build companies.